Our scripture reading this morning is from Second Chronicles chapter 36. As we read the end of the historian's account of Israel before the exile. Second Chronicles chapter 36, beginning in verse 5, and this really sets the context for the book of Daniel. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attacked him and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also took to Babylon articles from the temple of the Lord and put them in his temple there. The other events of Jehoiakim's reign, the detestable things he did and all that was found against him are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiakim, his son, succeeded him as king. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In the spring, King Nebuchadnezzar sent for him and brought him to Babylon with the articles of value from the temple of the Lord. And he made Jehoiakim's uncle, Zedekiah, king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and of the people became more and more unfaithful following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with a sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young men nor young women, old men or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried them to Babylon, all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation it rested until the seventy years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Prescott, can you come lead us in prayer? Well, I have decided to go to the book of Daniel now that we have finished our garden series. And I chose the book of Daniel for a couple of reasons. First of all, Daniel is a great story. It really is a great story. It's, it's 12 chapters of nonstop action and interesting things. Who would not enjoy a story about exiles who become God's representative rulers in a world empire? 
That's really what the story of Daniel is all about. We have in this book a story about a fiery furnace along with a den of lions. We have in Daniel the handwriting on the wall, which Daniel interprets. Daniel is also known as one of the key books of prophecy in the Old Testament that sets the stage for the coming of Christ and the end of the old world. Daniel is sort of a bridge, a book of the Bible that takes us from Israel of old to Israel made new in Jesus Christ. And I think that's the key to understanding a lot of the imagery that we're going to see in the book of Daniel, particularly in the second half of the book of Daniel. Uh, The second reason I chose Daniel is because of how relevant the book is to us who live at our point in what many call the twilight of Western civilization. Uh, You look at the context of Daniel. Daniel takes place in a very dark period of time in covenant history. Many people are very, of course, very disappointed about what had happened in their in the life of their nation, in the life of their people, with the destruction of, of Jerusalem by Babylon, the carrying off of the exiles and all of God's temple furnishings to Babylon. It was a very dark period of time. But actually, there are amazing things that happen in the book of Daniel that no one expected to happen. And I think that that's very relevant to our particular time because a lot of people today are very demoralized and discouraged about what they see in the conditions around them today. Look at a bad situation in in our particular culture. In Western civilization, it looks like things are going downhill and people are very discouraged and not very optimistic. Well, I think if we were to pay more attention to the book of Daniel, then we would be very optimistic about this period of time in history because in the book of Daniel, we learn that it it is actually in the darkest times of covenant history that God does the most amazing things. And that's what we see in the book of Daniel. In the darkest of times, God doing the most amazing things. So here we have this context. The temple would would be destroyed and God's people would become servants to a foreign nation. Yet right in the midst of this dark and foreboding chapter of covenant history, God accomplished amazing things. Daniel became a priest, as it were, to the leaders of an international empires, all of the international empires of his day. And ultimately, Daniel was used of God as God's priest to convert the rulers of these world empires. That is an amazing thing if you think about what happened in the life of Daniel. Not just once, it happens twice in the life of Daniel. And we'll see how that plays out in the book of Daniel. So at the very darkest point in Israel's history, God brought about through Daniel the brightest explosion of the covenant gospel perhaps in all of Israel's old covenant history. That's really what the book is about. Daniel also includes perhaps the only part of the Old Testament written by a Gentile king praising the God of Israel as his God. It's probably the only place in the Old Testament where we have Gentiles writing scripture. We find that in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 4. It's an amazing, amazing testament to the grace of God in a dark, dark time. So you should be able to understand the parallel to us in our, in our time. We can be optimistic because of what we learn in the book of Daniel. We can expect that God will do amazing things in our days no matter what the circumstances we find ourselves, no matter how dark it is, no matter how depressing or demoralizing we may look at the conditions around us. It is precisely in these kinds of conditions that God likes to do the most amazing things. So Daniel can be the source of great encouragement for us for we see in it the way God works in the world. The third reason I chose to move on to Daniel after the Garden series is that the details of Daniel really make sense in the framework of God's garden that we have studied over the last year or so. 
you might remember that I emphasized the parallel between Adam and Israel in our look at God's garden through the Bible. Remember, Adam and Israel are really parallel figures. Both Adam and Israel were made in the wilderness by God and planted in a garden. Both Adam and Israel broke God's covenant. So these parallels between Adam and Israel help us rightly understand what it means to have God's death penalty. When we go back to the Garden of Eden, the very first command that God gave Adam was that he was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that he would eat of it, he would surely die. And those parallels between Israel and Adam tell us exactly what that death penalty is. And we saw how that worked out in the story of the Garden of Eden. When Eve and then Adam ate of that tree, they were cut out or cast out of God's presence. That was their death sentence. They were separated from the tree of life. And they no longer had life in God. They were covenantally removed from God. And we see the very same thing happening with Israel. If you go to Second Kings, you'll see this very same language being used of casting out or thrusting out. Second Kings chapter 24, it's a parallel text to what we read for our scripture reading in Second Chronicles, but Second Kings 24, verse 1. During Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. But he changed his mind and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord sent Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against him. He sent them to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servant the prophets. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood, for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord was not willing to forgive. See that language of thrusting Israel from God's presence? We see the very same thing in verse 18. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother's name was Hamatul, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord just as Jehoiakim had done. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah and in the end, he thrust them from his presence. So we have an echo here of what happened in the Garden of Eden when Israel broke God's covenant. They were thrust from God's presence. Now there are other parallels here that work very well with what happened in Daniel's day to what happened in the Garden because even when God pronounced the death penalty on Adam and Eve and cast them out of his presence, he also gave them a promise. Genesis 3.15 was the promise of the coming seed who would redeem Adam and Eve and all of their kin. And yet we have a very similar promise in the context of Daniel with Jeremiah the prophet especially, but the other prophets also spoke of this, because when Israel was removed from the land, they were promised that they would be returned after 70 years. And so even in this judgment, we see God's grace, just like even in the judgment of Adam and Eve in the garden, we see God's grace as well. Also, notice there's some more parallels here. We should not forget that God's presence remained with Adam and Eve as they were cast into the wilderness. For when Cain murdered Abel, after Adam and Eve left the garden, we are told that Cain went out from the Lord's presence in Genesis 4. So even when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they had God's presence go with them. And that is an, that's a model of God's grace. And we see that very, very clearly here with Daniel and the other exiles who go to Babylon. Even though they are cast out of the land... God goes with them and his presence remains with them and they remain strong in Babylon as they remain faithful. So we'll see how all these parallels work their way out with Daniel and the other Hebrews. A strange place for them 
it was really the source of idolatry, the source of, of, of paganism in their day. Certainly it was an unclean land from their perspective as God's righteous people who've been set apart in the holy promised land of, of promise. Another aspect we need to be aware of Daniel in the, in the beginning about the structure of Daniel that I think is very important to understand what is going to go on in the content of Daniel is that there are actually ten sections of Daniel and they actually match all of the chapters of Daniel. The chapter breaks in Daniel are probably the very best places they are anywhere in Scripture in Daniel because there are, there are actually ten segments through the book of Daniel and the chapter breaks fall exactly right except for the tenth the tenth section is chapters 10 through 12. That's all one unit. And if I were to mention this to you, that there are 10 segments of Daniel, and if I were to mention to you that they were cast out of the land because they refused to keep God's law, then maybe you should start thinking about these 10 sections of Daniel because there is an order to them and they match something very important. So if I were to tell you there are 10 sections of the book of Daniel, what would you immediately start to think about the book of Daniel being about. Think of the covenant at Sinai. There are ten sections of Daniel because Daniel unfolds as a demonstration of how to keep God's law. So the first chapter has a very interesting emphasis on the first command of God, the second chapter the second, and the third the third, and moving on. And so what we really have with the book of Daniel is that Israel was not able to keep God's law. And the book of Daniel is going to show Israel how they can keep the Ten Commandments. And you'll see this as we go through the book of Daniel. We have, for example, the first commandment, of course, is that the God's people are to have no other gods before me. And we see that with Daniel, how he and his friends reject the food, reject the idols of Nebuchadnezzar's table. The second commandment is to have no graven image before me, to make no graven image or worship no graven image. And we have in in Daniel chapter 2, of course, a a story about the image or statue of Nebuchadnezzar and the true image of God paralleling the second commandment. The third commandment is, shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. And we see that the three three companions of Daniel are known as God's property and they do not bow down and worship the image and so they keep God's name holy upon themselves in the story of the fiery furnace. Chapter 4 is to honor the Sabbath, and we understand that as resting in Christ for our salvation and not in the works of our hands. And what we see in chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar starts boasting about the work of his hands and him making this great kingdom that he made. He was arrogant and he was puffed up in pride, and of course he did not honor the Sabbath. Command number 5 is honor your father and your mother. And in Daniel chapter 5, we read about Belteshazzar who did not remember the faith of his father, Nebuchadnezzar. And actually we have a story about the handwriting on the wall where the queen mother tells uh, Belteshazzar to go find Daniel to interpret. So there's an interesting theme about honoring father and mother in in chapter 5. Chapter 6 matches the sixth commandment, which is you should not commit murder. Because in chapter 6 we find that there are officials that that cause Darius to pass a law in order to get Daniel murdered in the lion's den. And we find out in that story that just as in the law of murder, those who attempt to commit murder, who commit murder, are actually supposed to be put to death. We find that those officials who did that receive an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and they are eaten by those lions by which they had originally planned to kill Daniel. 
So we have the, the law of murder in, in chapter 6. In chapter 7, we have a parallel to the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, where Daniel prophesies of, spiritual, of the spiritual adultery of his people that his people would engage in during the time of the Messiah. And we see that in the New Testament very clearly is what, what that commandment means. The, the eighth commandment is thou shalt not steal. And in Jan- Daniel chapter 8, we read about the prophecies of nations who take for themselves the prerogatives that belong to God alone. In the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false testimony. We see that Daniel gives a true testimony about the time of the coming of the Messiah and the end of the old covenant world. And in the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. In chapters 10 through 12, we read about the kings of the south and the north who will fight and a king will arise who exalts himself against God and will gain the riches and treasures of Egypt and invade the Holy Land. And so he's a covetous king and we'll read about that with Herod and his unity, unity with the Romans. So remember that structure as we work through, the, through Daniel. Daniel is a book that tells us what keeping God's law looks like. And this is very important in that context because Israel had failed to keep God's law. So let's go to Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. This was not the final destruction of Jerusalem. Actually, if you put the chronology of this together with what we read in Chronicles, this is one of the earlier times, probably the first time that Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem. This probably happened in 609 B.C., probably about 20 years before Nebuchadnezzar came back for the final time to absolutely destroy Jerusalem. And so Daniel and his friends are taken into captivity before the final destruction of Jerusalem. And we're going to see next, week, next time in Daniel chapter 2 why that's important. Daniel is actually in Babylon before the final destruction. And you notice here that the articles from the temple of God play a role in what Nebuchadnezzar did. Nebuchadnezzar took these articles from the temple and he was going to make them and and put them into his temple, his palace, his his place of the gods. And we'll see how these articles in the temple that are brought from the temple play a big role later in Daniel as well in in the chapters to come. Uh, Verse 3, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court official, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. So what you have here is the king of Babylon is cherry-picking from the best and the brightest from Israel. And he was going to educate them and he was going to try to make his kingdom stronger by incorporating these best and the brightest from Israel into his king's court. And he would actually find them to be helpful as he governed his empire. Uh, Verse 6. Among these were some from Judah. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah the chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, 
and to Azariah Abednego. Now these are new names. And anytime you see new names in the Scriptures, you should, see, you should think about a very significant meaning to new names. What do new names mean in the Bible? New names, when you rename somebody or you name something, it is a sign of dominion or it can also be a sign of adoption. And that's why we see, we see God naming Adam and then you have Adam naming the animals. That's where that all comes from. Now these names of the Hebrews contain the word El and also Yah, which is recognized as God's name. And so what we have is this transformation from God's name. You have Nebuchadnezzar giving them new names that contain Bel, as in Belteshazzar. Uh, that would be from Baal or Marduk, king of the Babylonians. And Shadrach bears a resemblance to the name for the moon god of Babylon, suggesting that Yahweh was an inferior god and now this particular person from, from Israel was going to be called Shadrach in the name of the moon god. You also have something similar with Meshach. Uh, same moon god is represented there. And there is some confusion about Abednego, but it probably relates to Marduk as well, who is also called Nebo. So you have this transferring of names from their Hebrew names, which recognize God as sovereign, to these Babylonian names, which were named after the, the Babylonian gods. Also, notice that we have four individuals in this group. Daniel is sort of a leader, and then you have three of his companions. That, that form of four, of four companions actually repeats a lot in the Bible. You have, for example, Abraham, who is a leader, who went to war with three warrior companions to deliver Lot. And we see this pattern of four, a group of four happening over and over and over again in the Bible. Moses worked with Aaron and his two sons. Job had three counselors or companions. David had three mighty men that ran his army. So you have David and three companions. And of course, this comes to full fruition with Jesus Christ, who had three close disciples in Peter, James, and John. So this is interesting. We have four companions. I don't think it's a coincidence at all that these are the four that remain faithful to God in Babylon. So we should see their relationship in terms of this repeating pattern which provides a context for what comes next. Verse 8, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. So the very first test of Daniel and his companions has to do with food. Now there is a lot of debate about why righteous Daniel rejected the king's food. Some suggest that the food was unclean for these Jews being unclean meats. For example, foods that were unclean and not allowed for Jews to eat. Now there's a couple of problems with that idea because first of all, the wine was not forbidden to Jews to drink. So the wine was not unclean, so we, I think that's a real problem for viewing this as simply as a matter of clean and unclean foods. Besides, we lo- know from the New Testament that the point of the dietary laws had to do with spiritual uncleanness. Jesus said that it is not what it goes into a man that defiles a man, but what comes out. And later we see in Daniel chapter 10 that Daniel has no problem with eating Gentile food. So that's, I, I think that's a real wrong way of looking at what the problem was here that Daniel faced. Another option is that the food of the king 
was, had first been offered to idols. If you look at the ancient civilizations, they would take the best of the crops and they would offer them to the idols and then they would be for the royalty or for the priests. And so it's, it is likely that some of this food and wine had been offered as a sacrifice to the idols and then provided food for the table of Nebuchadnezzar. Now the problem with that view is that Paul explained that food offered to idols was nothing. And of course, Daniel and the, his companions were not engaging in the sacrificial practice themselves, so it would not have been a problem uh, for them to eat this food if, if we look at this from the eyes of the New Testament. That would not have defiled them because they did not engage in idolatry. What was the problem then? The problem really boils down to covenant identification. If these young men were to accept their new position in Babylon on the terms that Babylon dictated, they would lose their covenant status in relationship to God and become identified as Babylonians themselves. That was the big problem. The question was if they were to become Babylonians or whether they would remain distinct as God's people in Babylon. So the food that they chose would determine their communion. And I think these, these symbolic things are very helpful to understand. When you eat with someone, you are communing with someone. So when they were to accept the king's food as acceptable to them, they would end up being communing with the, the table of Nebuchadnezzar and they would become Babylonians in their covenant identification. Now they were ready to serve Nebuchadnezzar. And if you look at the context of the story, God had ordained that God's people would serve Nebuchadnezzar. They knew this from the prophets because the prophets told them this. But they were determined to set the terms and therefore maintain the distinction between themselves and Babylon. Daniel and his companions remained true to God and did not assent to the idolatry of Babylon by accepting the food from the king's table. Daniel and his companions kept the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Now isn't it interesting also that the very first command given to Adam had to do with food in the Garden of Eden. Because God laid out which foods that they could eat and then you had Satan showing up offering Adam and Eve different food. And so what you have here in this example, the question was, would they eat the food which God provided, which, they, which the terms they would set, or would they eat the food offered by the serpent and show their allegiance to Satan? And so what you really have here is an obedience of Daniel of the same kind of obedience that Adam and Eve should have learned in the garden. But there's a problem. Daniel's not in charge, so he must make his plea to those in charge. Note how Daniel proposes a test in verse 11. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had pointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink, then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Notice how it is Daniel who suggests an empirical test for the official to follow. It is almost as if Daniel is the scientist on the scene and says, I believe that this is a better way and now let's put it to the test. 
So it is the Hebrew here who shows the Babylonian that empirical testing is one way to learn about the truth of the situation. So Daniel stepped out on faith and he rejected the king's food. And by the way, that's dangerous. It's a dangerous thing to do. Daniel was risking his life by doing that. And then he asked for an alternative food, an alternative dish that he would, he and his companions would try for 10 days and then he would have this test at the end. And by the way, the Hebrew word for vegetables literally means seeds. What he was asking for, of course seeds are vegetables because they're not meat, but what he's actually asking for in specific were grains. And it might help to point out that Ezekiel the priest was told to take seeds, wheat, barley, beans, lentils, milk, and spelt, and make bread to signify this priesthood that he had during this time of exile. And Ezekiel was also ordained to be a priest. He was, when he was ordained to be a priest, he was told not to drink wine, but to drink water. And I think that's the connection here that we have with Daniel and his companions. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel is the book right before Daniel. Ezekiel chapter 4, and I think that there's a parallel here between what happens in the story of Daniel. And Ezekiel, the prophet, is actually the same age as Daniel, very close to the same age. This would have happened after Daniel's situation, but I think that the parallel still remains. Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 9. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt. All those are seeds and put, put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Weigh out 20 shekels of food to each day and eat it at set times. Also measure out a sixth of a hen of water and drink it at set times. Notice he's drinking water instead of wine. Eat the food as you would a barley cake. Bake it in the sight of the people using human excrement for fuel. And the Lord said in this way, the people of Israel will... Eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them. Now that connection between Ezekiel and seeds and water and Daniel and his request for seeds and water tells us what Daniel is doing. Daniel is preparing himself for God's priesthood. As he lives in Babylon, he is going to be God's priest. But he was going to be God's priest first before he became servant to Nebuchadnezzar. He would maintain separation in his primary role as God's servant first. So in doing this, Daniel succeeded in the first test in Babylon. He did not eat the forbidden food and therefore became a picture of Jesus Christ who was also tested with food by another one to claim to have authority over all the nations. If you look back at the temptation of Jesus Christ, he was tempted by one who claimed to have authority of all the nations just like Daniel was tempted by Nebuchadnezzar who had political authority over the empire now let's continue in verse 15 at the end of the ten days they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food so the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead to these four men God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians, 
and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Isn't it ironic that Nebuchadnezzar found the four young men most noticeable most noticeable, to be the very four young men who originally defied him? That's an interesting irony. We see this played out over and over again. The four who refused initially to align themselves politically with the king are precisely the ones the king finds filled with wisdom and understanding. And this point is brought home in a subtle way in the context of Daniel 1. Notice what names are being used for Daniel and his companions. They're not being called by their Babylonian names here. They're still being called, in verse 19, their Hebrew names. And so, the story of Daniel and the context of Daniel in these first details suggests that Nebuchadnezzar had defeated these Hebrews. He had certainly defeated Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. But in fact, the Hebrews he chose for his own interests will be the ones who, by the power of the Spirit and in God's time, will defeat Nebuchadnezzar and the gods of Babylon. They maintain their covenant names. And through their obedience, they became God's weapon, God's tool to overthrow Babylon. Now this idea of priesthood of Daniel, preparing to be a priest in Nebuchadnezzar's house, actually, there's an interesting play in this chapter because at the very beginning of the chapter, it talks about some of those vessels from the temple of God. In verse 2, These he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. And if you think about this very far, about the symbolism of what the furniture in the temple was to symbolize and how that temple furniture was to be used, and if you understand what's going on here with Daniel and his companions as becoming priests of God in Babylon, you'll understand that when he took these vessels from Judah, from Jerusalem, he was actually also taking the priests with him because Daniel and them become, as it were, priests in God's temple and they are carried off to Babylon. So what are the lessons of Daniel 1? God's people may find themselves in any environment, but they must first obey God's first commandment and not be incorporated into the ways of unbelievers to the point that we lose our distinctiveness as God's people. First service to God alone. That was, that was the lesson of Daniel chapter 1. Daniel first served God before he served unbelievers. And it's really the same lesson that Adam and Eve were supposed to learn in the garden. Does this mean that God's people are called to remain physically separate from unbelievers in order to remain true to God? That's how a lot of people think of this. You have to remove yourself from the world so you're not interacting with unbelievers at any point in time. And that's how people maintain their separation from God. Does it mean that? No, it doesn't mean that because Daniel is put there for a reason. And Daniel is going to have a ministry in Babylon in this kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar and it's not about physical separation. It's about covenant identification. Who you identify yourself as first and foremost. You first and foremost identify yourself as a member of God's people and his kingdom and then perform service in the world or do you just accept whatever the world gives you and become like everybody else? That's really the lesson of Daniel. And it's interesting because this idea of physical separation is very common in our day with Christians, being physically separate from the world. But actually, if you look at the context, that is what some of the Jews wanted to do in Daniel's day. 
They didn't want to go to Babylon because they didn't want to be associated physically with Babylon. And those Jews ended up rebelling against God because God had a purpose for them in Babylon. You look at people today who think that the only way to remain true to God is to separate from all associations in the world. They're repeating the same error as the Jews, the brothers and sisters of Daniel and his companions who rejected going to Babylon and were destroyed because of their disobedience to God. God's sovereign purposes put us into contact with those who live apart from God. We should embrace those opportunities, but we must always demonstrate that we are first and foremost priests of the living God who has called us out of the futile way of life so many others follow. So when we learn this lesson and obey God's command and step out in faith, because that's what Daniel did. Daniel stepped out in faith by rejecting the king's food. We will also learn that it, it just very well may be that God is about to do something very exciting through us as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for calling us out and separating us as your people, your priests who minister the gospel to the world around us. We pray that you bless us and strengthen us in the study of Daniel and his companions. May we all be encouraged and also be equipped for the good work that you have us to do in the world around us. We pray that you bless us and strengthen us in this week of activity. Pour out your spirit upon us as we continue to teach our children the ways of the Lord. In Jesus Christ's name we pray these things.